I think there might be a few handouts left there on the table on Thy Word is Truth. And we're going to pick up uh, where we left off um, on that. And so we have handouts so that you can go home and read the verses and look at the passages and um, some real, real important doctrine. And because, because God's Word is truth, uh, we're going to pray, you know, once again that God anoints whoever's preaching on our, any particular Sunday that God anoints him to proclaim God's truth since uh, God has chosen fallible men to proclaim his, his perfect word. So, so let's uh, bow our heads and go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, I, I just thank you, Lord, that the people that are here today They're here because they want to worship you. They're here because they want to hear your word proclaimed. They're here because they love you, they love your word, and they love your people. And so I pray, Lord, that that they would not leave here today disappointed. I pray that you would cancel the man and that you would anoint me and empower me with your spirit to proclaim your truth so that I would not lead anyone astray. I pray you'd open hearts and minds, including my own, to receive truth from your word. And pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us to obey your word from the heart and for your glory. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you not only sent us your son, You not only sent us the Savior, but you've also given us your written word so that uh, we can study your word uh, for guidance in daily living. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. So thy word is truth, biblical inspiration and inerrancy. I just want to read again one of the key passages here that we looked at a couple weeks ago. And that's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And we'll just look at that, and then we'll just kind of review what we covered a couple weeks ago, and then we'll get uh, right into it. But because the Bible is God's word, that's why the, the reformer said sola scriptura, which meant that the Bible alone is the final authority upon which we test all other things. You can learn truths outside of the Bible. I mean, if you're going to be an electrician, you're not going to become a good electrician just by studying the Bible. You've got to look at what truths God has revealed to us in nature. But if you think you're learning a truth from nature or from some human teacher or some spirit entity that appears to you, you better test it with the proven word of God. Okay? That's why Paul said, let God be true and every man a liar. I'm telling you, tell me amen if there's a lot of liars right now in American culture. We're being lied to on a regular basis, okay? If you study the scriptures and you find out I'm lying to you, you go, you confront me. If I don't uh, recant and repent, you go find a church where the word of God really is preached. But fake news, we kind of coined the phrase a few years ago, it's been going on. First bringer of uh, fake news. Satan himself speaking through the serpent, and it's been going on ever since. And so how do we know when we hear fake news? We study the word of God. We study God's truth, okay? And um, 
And so in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul says this, all scripture, you see that? He says all scripture, not most of scripture, but all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's inspired by God. God guided human authors to record his word without error and is profitable for doctrine, that's for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay? So it's nice that we can read books to help us to understand God's word, and we can read books to find out about what people think and then test it with the Bible. But with everything said and done, uh, if you are grounded in the Bible, you're equipped for every good work. Okay? And so the Bible is sufficient. It is our final authority for faith and practice. We talked about key doctrines in the Bible, that God revealed his truth to biblical authors, and he inspired the authors. God guided the human authors to record his word without error. So in the end, it's the scriptures that are inspired. And he... Uh, guided human authors to record his word totally without error in the originals, but we have over 20,000 copies, reliable copies that we can compare so we know pretty much what the original says. Now, the Holy Spirit enlightens our minds and hearts to understand God's word because sin gets in the way. Whenever our shepherd speaks to us, the evil one tries to snatch that away. And so the Holy Spirit has to enlighten our minds and hearts to understand his word. Uh, and then God ensured there'd be accurate copies of the inerrant originals. The Holy Spirit guided the ancient Jews and the early church to recognize which books belong in the Bible. And then the Holy Spirit fills and empowers his people to preach his word. And that's not just from this pulpit. That's tomorrow when you're at work and you're sharing uh, God's word with a fellow worker. The Holy Spirit can fill and empower you to proclaim his truth. And so God guided human authors to record his written word, and all scripture is inspired by God. Uh, and that's both the Old and the New Testament are inspired uh, by God. Um, we find that Peter, in 2 Peter 3, 14 to 16, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, he referred to Paul's letters as scripture. So while Paul and Peter were still breathing, their writings were already acknowledged as scripture. Okay? And, um, and then Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, he quotes a phrase that is only found in the Gospel of Luke, and he calls it Scripture. So before the apostles even died, in the 60s AD, we already recognize some of Paul's writings, because Paul wrote another letter to the Corinthians that we don't have today and was never added to the, the canon of Scripture. Uh, but we find that Paul's writings in the Gospels, and then Luke also wrote Acts, they, you had that first canon right there. And um, I think he can make a case for James writing his letter about 45 AD, James, the half-brother of Jesus. And uh, 
So whatever the case, you know, we talked about when you look at just three of the pupils of the apostles selected by the apostles to lead in the early church, just three of the apostolic fathers, we find that they quoted from or alluded to at least 23 out of the 27 New Testament books uh, by 107 AD. And it wasn't like they were arguing that these books need to be added to the canon of Scripture. Uh, it was implied that the readers already knew that those books were in the canon of Scripture. Okay? And, uh, and so uh, the doctrine of inerrancy, God guided human authors to record his word without error. And so the Bible is totally true in all that it teaches. It is totally without errors in the original manuscripts, and God preserved accurate copies and plenty of them so we know what the originals said. In Proverbs chapter 30, or Proverbs 35 and 6, we're told every word of God is flawless. Do not add to his word, lest you be proven, lest you be proven to be a liar. So the Bible is true in whatever it teaches. Please, there, there are young guys coming out of so-called evangelical seminaries that are supposed to believe the Bible is without errors. And we've got, we are graduating future preachers, many of whom accept what their professors are telling them, and so many of whom do not agree with this statement, and that is the Bible is true in whatever it teaches, whether it's spiritual issues, moral issues, historical, scientific. The Bible's not a history textbook. It's not a science textbook. But since God is the ultimate author, okay, God's not going to get his history wrong. God's not going to get scientific issues wrong, okay? And, um, and so we have accurate copies of the inerrant originals. Christians should not transform historical narratives of miraculous events into mere figures of speech. Christians should not turn the Genesis creation and flood accounts into ancient mythology. We got probably the world's leading defender of the Christian faith alive today and just wrote a book about the historical Adam where he classifies the first 11 chapters of Genesis as mytho-historical. So there was a historical Adam and Eve and a historical flood because Jesus and Paul and Peter talked about them in the New Testament, but he's saying there's a lot of mythology intertwined with those historical characters so that... Um, Adam and Eve evolved from apes, he believes, and, um, and there was no global flood, it was just a local flood, things of that, that sort. We, we don't, don't play games with God's word, okay? Do not play games with God's word, okay? Um, so even if there's symbolic passages like parables or allegories or metaphors, look for the actual meaning behind the figures of speech but don't turn literal passages into symbolic ones. And so what we need to look at right now is what Jesus taught about the Bible. What Jesus taught about the Bible. And I'm telling you, it's really interesting that when so-called evangelical scholars try to water down the Bible and throw out some miracles, I don't know if it's to gain respect with uh, non-Christian scholarship, and when they try to do it, if they profess to be believers, they have a hard time 
with, uh, with what Jesus taught. And so they have to do a lot of dancing if they want to come up with a view and promote a view that Jesus didn't really hold. And so what did Jesus teach? Now, we believe Jesus is God the Son become a man. He died on the cross for our sins, took our punishment for us. He bodily rose from the dead to conquer death for us, okay? So I don't, I don't know about you, but Jesus has a really good resume with me. It doesn't get any better than that, okay? First thing on his resume is he's God the Son, okay? Uh, so whatever Jesus taught, you know, it's like when Paul said, let God be true and every man a liar. You could say the same, you know, Jesus is God the Son. Let Jesus be true and every man a liar, you know? I get, it's funny that sometimes I'll get, you know, guys will be arguing with me and sometimes they're baby Christians and they haven't read the whole Bible and they'll say something. I say, well, that's really interesting what you're saying. The problem is Jesus held a different view. So it's like, who am I going to agree with, you or Jesus? I mean, it's just like you, can, you try to compete with Jesus, you lose. All right? And um, so what did Jesus teach? First, what did he teach about the Old Testament? Because the Old Testament was written, was completed hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. And so look at John chapter 17, John 17 and verse 17. And so Jesus, the, the word of God at that point, the written word of God was just the Old Testament. So what did Jesus teach about the Old Testament even before the New Testament was written? He's praying to God the Father and he says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth sanctify them, set apart believers by your truth. Your word, he's praying to God the Father, is truth. God's word is truth. We saw earlier that, you know, in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, that God cannot lie. Okay? Our God is the God of truth. Okay? God cannot lie. If the Bible is God's word, it's all true. Okay? And, uh, and so Jesus said, of the Old Testament, God's word is truth. Look at John chapter 10 and verse 35. And uh, we'll start at 34. Well, Jesus just got done telling the Jewish religious leaders that I and the Father are one. So Jesus just got done saying, I'm equal with God the Father. We're, we're just two distinct persons, but I'm equally God with God the Father. So the Jews picked up stones to stone him, and so Jesus figured, okay, I'll just throw out a passage that they can't figure out uh, just to throw a, a monkey wrench in their argument. So Jesus answered them, it is, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. And he's quoting from Psalm 82. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. And what Jesus is saying is, look, Jesus claimed to be equal with God. They picked up stones to stone him. For which of my works, for which of my miracles are you stoning me? Not for your works, but for your words, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. So Jesus is like, okay, you guys want to debate me? 
you want to debate me about the Bible? Because I wrote, I wrote the Bible. And, uh, and so Jesus says, okay, let me give you a passage. God calls either angelic beings or human teachers to whom the word of God came. God calls them gods in the Psalms. Now, the scriptures can't be broken. Now, if God could call non-gods gods in either a functional way, they're supposed to represent God, or a metaphorical way, symbolic way, if God could call non-gods gods, then doesn't the Son of God, who comes from the throne room of God, have the right to call himself God because he actually is God? That's what his argument is. But when he threw this out, he took away one possible response that they could make. Because he, he, when he said, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scriptures cannot be broken, see, he's taken away one option, one possible response. They could always respond, we don't think that verse belongs in the Bible because it sounds kind of creepy. And what did Jesus tell them? The scriptures cannot be broken. You got a lot of people trying to yank verses out of the Bible. You know, back in the early 1990s, I debated a guy, uh, Washington State president of parents and friends of lesbians and gays, uh, Reverend Farley Maxwell, on the biblical perspective of homosexuality. And, um, uh, And he was explaining how he thinks Paul just let his cultural biases come out when he called homosexuality a sin. Okay? And I had stated in my opening statement that this guy is going to claim he's got respect for God's word, but before this debate is over, you're going to see that he's going to be throwing out any passages of the scriptures that he doesn't like. And he doesn't like any passages that call homosexuality a sin. So he says that's Paul's prejudices getting into the text. Look, is the book of Romans God's word or is it not God's word? Amen. So, uh, it's a done deal. Jesus said, look, here's a verse. You guys, Jewish religious leaders, you think you're so smart? You want to refute me? Well, here's a verse, and remember, the scriptures can't be broken. You can't just throw verses out of your Bible. And we're doing that today, even by some people who call themselves evangelicals. But Jesus said that God's word is truth, and the scriptures cannot be broken. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, billions of people say they love the Sermon on the Mount, they say it's the greatest sermon ever preached, but a big chunk of those people only love it because they haven't studied it enough to see what it's saying. You, you read the Sermon on the Mount, it sounds, sounds so nice when you quote it out of context. You put it in its proper context. I mean, Jesus is basically saying things like, if you don't build your life on my teachings, you're going to hell. I don't think Gandhi understood that part of the Sermon on the Mount, even though he claimed to like the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, But Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Jesus said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. That was a title given to the Old Testament, the law, or you can call it the law and the prophets, or you can call it the law and the prophets and the writings. 
So do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. Do not think that I came to destroy the Old Testament. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. See, because he was teaching salvation is not by obeying the works of the law. You can't earn your salvation. He was getting a reputation from the legalist, the Jewish Pharisees. They were saying, see, this guy is anti-law. He's against God's word. He's against the Old Testament. Jesus said, look, I didn't come to destroy or abolish the Old Testament. I came to fulfill it. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Uh, basically, the words he's using, jot and tittle, is just, it's kind of like the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T. So Jesus is saying, oh, my, my view of the Old Testament, the Old Testament is perfect, not just in the general theme, the overall stories, the overall passages, not just the sentences, not just the words, but even to the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T. God's word is without error. Uh, I mean, you hold that view today, and you'll be made fun of by the world. But guess what? I expect that from the world. That's why the world is the world. That's why they're still in Adam. They're not in Christ. Okay? But like Paul says, let every man be true. Let God be true, and every man a liar. Look at Matthew 15, what Jesus says here. We'll start at verse 1. Matthew 15. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, they're not accusing Jesus or the apostles of being unsanitary. They're talking about, you know, the, the, the Jewish religious leaders came up with a tradition where you had, to, you had to go through a cleansing type of washing for just before just about anything you did, okay? The only guys who could obey all the technicalities the Pharisees had, the only way you could outwardly obey all those technicalities, you'd have to be a full-time religious leader because be there wouldn't be enough time to do anything else, okay? And, uh, uh, and so Jesus says, well, wait a minute, uh, He's going to respond to that. Well, these guys are acting like, you don't, you don't obey our traditions. Verse 3, he answered, Jesus answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, and then he quotes from the book of Exodus, the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. And... But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Okay? And so what he's basically saying is the Pharisees said, look, by the way, honoring your father and mother doesn't mean obey mommy and daddy. This means after, mom, after you grow up and you move out on your own, you're supposed to honor your mom and your dad. You're supposed to try to do everything in your power to help take care of them. They took care of you when you were little. 
Okay? They, 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 they changed your diapers when you were little. You might have to change their diapers when they get old. Okay? And that's why it's the only, it's the only command, the Ten Commandments, with a promise. Paul says in Ephesians, um, the promise is so that you'll live long in the land. It was the Bible's, God's retirement plan. If you get too old to work, don't worry. You raised your kids. They saw you taking care of your parents. When they were still alive, your kids will take care of you. Is that what we teach today? No. Well, the Pharisees were like, man, I'm making good money. I don't want to waste my money on my parents. So what I'll do, one hand washes the other. And Jesus says, why uh, do you disobey God's commands, God's word, for the sake of your tradition? By the way, God is not opposed to all tradition. There are human traditions that are good traditions that the word of God never commands us to partake in. How do I know that? Because in John chapter 10, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights, the Maccabees purifying the temple. Nowhere in the scriptures are we commanded to do that. That was in between the Old and New Testament. You know what Jesus said? That's a good human tradition made by my Jewish brethren. And, uh, but when you have a tradition that contradicts the word of God, it's time to trash your tradition. Okay? And, uh, and so Jesus makes it very, very clear that all things should be tested with God's word. Look at Matthew 22. You've got to pay attention. You've got to follow me on this one. This is not easy to understand. But Matthew chapter 22, we'll actually start this passage so you get the context of it in, uh, in verse 23. The same day, Matthew 22, starting at verse 23, the same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him. The Sadducees were the temple priests. And these guys, I don't know, these guys were making a lot of money offering animal sacrifices in the temple, okay? But they didn't even believe in, in bodily future bodily resurrection of the true followers of Yahweh, the God of Israel. In fact, it seems like they didn't even believe in life after death. They didn't believe in spirits and angels, okay? I mean, it's just like, why even have animal sacrifices, if you don't believe in life after death. But the same day, the Sadducees, the temple priests, who say there is no resurrection, the Pharisees now believed all of those things, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. So under the law of Moses, you know, if a guy a guy dies without having children, his brother would then marry the wife and raise children for his brother, okay, to continue his brother's name. Um, verse 25, now there, was, there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. 
And they're thinking, this, you can't answer this, Jesus. By the way, don't ever start a conversation. Don't ever start a prayer with, you can't answer this, Jesus. You're going to get shut down. Okay? You can't answer this, Jesus. Uh, he usually responds by saying, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. Then he gives them a question. They can't answer it. Debate's over. And, uh, and so, which, which of the seven brothers would the wife be in the resurrection? They thought it would be a, a contradiction. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Okay? You, you want to be mistaken in life? Quickest way to be mistaken? Uh, don't know the scriptures. You know, it gets irritating for me to listen to really, really smart, you know, intelligent people who don't know the scriptures because I don't care how good you are at reasoning. If your foundational truths are baloney, you're just consistently building upon the baloney, and it's still baloney, okay? And um, but he said, you guys are mistaken. You don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. And then he says, for in the resurrection... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. We don't become angels, but we become asexual in the resurrection. Okay? And um, so we're not going to marry nor be given in marriage in the resurrection. Now, Jesus has a little bit of a problem here. That's okay, because God's in the business of solving problems. And that problem is the Sadducees, with all the other stuff they reject, they also only, the Sadducees only accept the first five books of the Bible because those are, those are the books that deal with the law and all the temple rituals. So they just ignore the rest. So if Jesus is going to prove uh, the future resurrection and life after death, he can only go to the first five books of the Bible. So I'll give you homework on that. Try to... Try to prove the resurrection from the first five books of the Bible. You could, you could do it, but it's hard. Okay? And, uh, but Jesus is up to the challenge, obviously. He's God. And uh, he says, verse 31, But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. I remember being a new believer reading that and thought, why are they astonished? It's not a big deal. He's just quoting from Exodus 3 where God's speaking to Moses from the burning bush. Yeah, but what did God, how did God identify himself to Moses from the burning bush? He said, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. Now, he then says, well, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. It's about 1500 B.C. approximately with Moses when God says this. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for hundreds of years. Yet God says, I am, present tense. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, he says something that the Sadducees cannot disagree with. He says, God is not the God of the dead, 
but of the living. That was probably the mantra of the Sadducees. Because they didn't believe in life after death. God's not the God of the dead, but of the living. All he cares about are living people, the animal sacrifices and the commands he's given you. You want to live a good life, a good prosperous life without too much difficulty, you got to pay us and offer the animal sacrifices that God requires in his word. God is not the God of the dead. He's only the God of the living. The Sadducees would scream that louder than anybody because they believed if you're dead, you don't exist anymore. So they can't argue with Jesus on that. But Jesus just got done saying, look, he tells Moses... 1450 to 1500 B.C., I am, right now, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, hundreds of years after their death, but we agree God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Therefore, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still alive hundreds of years after their death and thousands of years before the future bodily resurrection. Okay? Okay. Now, for our present purposes, what I'm getting at here, Jesus bases his entire argument on the tense of the verb. Had Jesus said, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there would be no argument for life after death. But because Jesus used the present tense, I am, right now, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and since he's the God of the living, not, of the, not the God of the dead, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive hundreds of years after their death and long before the future resurrection. And so, uh, so Jesus is saying, look, the word of God is totally without error. Even the dotting of the I, the crossing of the T's, uh, even the tense of the verbs, so it's not just the words and the sentences and the paragraphs, uh, even the tense uh, of the verbs, and therefore we should never contradict the word of God, even if it's because of our traditions. Any man-made traditions that contradict the word of God, let God be true and every man a liar. Uh, so that's what Jesus taught about the Old Testament. I mean, it's an open-shut case. It's like the Old Testament is God's word totally without error. Okay? What did Jesus teach about the New Testament? And, you know, when I first started studying this, I thought, man, it's going to be difficult to, see, to find out Jesus' view of the New Testament since it hadn't been written yet. Okay? Now, keep in mind, the Old Testament, another word for testament is covenant a binding agreement between two parties. So the old covenant, um, the old covenant law was never intended to save, but was intended to show us that we cannot, from the heart, obey God's perfect standards in our own strength. We are sinners and we need a savior. So the Old Testament law was a tutor, a substitute teacher to lead us to Christ. Paul mentions that in Galatians 3.24, okay? And um, so, uh, but, but Paul, but, but Jesus here is teaching us uh, that the Old Testament is God's word without error. That's the old covenant. But now he's instituted 
the new covenant through his blood. And how does that work in with this? And well, Jesus said his words would never pass away. So when Jesus talked about the New Testament, he said, you know, Mark 13, 31, Mark 13, 31, he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay? Now, let me ask you this. So he's saying his words are going to be preserved. They didn't have audio recording back then. They didn't have video recording back then. So if Jesus' words are going to be preserved, if Jesus' teachings are going to be preserved, they're going to have to be either preserved orally through people just memorizing it and passing it down. And, you know, that, that can work well in some oral cultures, but once oral cultures become written cultures, we lose that expertise in, in that uh, passing down of oral tradition and so the most likely way that God would preserve Jesus' teachings would be the same way God gave us his teachings in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is basically predicting the new covenant is going to be given to us in written form and it will never pass away. And you might think, well, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Let me tell you... Um, Old and New Testament, the Bible, there, there's no collection of writings burned that were more copies have been burned than the Bible. The most powerful people on the planet Earth have tried to destroy the Bible and remove it from existence time and time again. By the way, it's going to happen here in America. They're going to declare the Bible to be hate speech, okay, because the Bible doesn't promote transgenderism, abortion, homosexuality, uh, sexual promiscuity, because uh, the Bible says there is a God and you're not him, so man's got no business trying to create superhumans through the transhumanism movement, animal-human hybrids, uh, human-computer hybrids, all the stuff that's going on, talk of human cloning. Well, we got... Uh, uh, I think it was the Centers for Disease Control, the uh, uh, Humanized Mice Project, where they're taking heads and, and limbs and organs from aborted babies, and they want them fresh and not frozen. That's why vans constantly move in and out of Planned Parenthood to take fresh body parts, a lot of money in that. But it's the Humanized Mice Project. You know, and there's a lot of people, we, we probably have people with different views about the vaccine here. And a lot of people act like, you know, some people act like, not people here, we love each other. But there's people who act like I'm an idiot because I, I just wasn't on board with Anthony Fauci. I thought he was shooting the baloney real early on. But it's kind of like, why in the world would I trust our government for medical advice when we got the Humanized Mice Project? We slaughter babies before they're born. Uh, no, I just, you know, you can call me uneducated, but I'm just sticking to the 66 books of the Bible, okay? And uh, 
I'm sorry, Anthony Fauci, the government is not God. God is still God, so you don't need to apply, okay? And uh, the position's already taken. So uh, uh, I'm not going to trust the government and act like it's totally infallible, totally inerrant, and I'm going to just uh, deify the state and worship the state. I'm not signing on to that. But I'm telling you, the day's going to come in this country, you don't sign on for that, you're going to be in a world of trouble. Okay? We got to tell the world, look, I got to do what God's called me to do. You do what, what you think you got to do. But I'm going to preach Jesus. You want to shut, shut me up? You come find me. I don't run as fast as I used to. You probably catch me a lot quicker now than when I was in the Marine Corps 40 years ago. But uh, when you catch me, you do what you think you got to do, but I got to preach Jesus. You know, it's like, I mean, I'm getting a little, little bit off the topic, but I want to show you the importance of this. Look at Jeremiah, the Old Testament book, Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse 9. This is the attitude we got to have. See, Jeremiah was getting, getting tired. They were, every time he opened his mouth, they were beating him up. They were imprisoning him. They were torturing him. And he was preaching to God's chosen nation. He wasn't even preaching to the pagans. So, I mean, things could get, things could get so bad... Preachers of God's word could get beat up in church for preaching God's word. Okay, don't think it can't happen here. But Jeremiah 20, verse 9, Jeremiah says this, Then I said, I will, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm tired, I'm battered, I'm beaten. I, I got nothing left. Every time I preach God's word, they beat me. I'm tired of getting battered and beaten. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name, but his word. But his word. Boy, three powerful words. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. Is God's word a burning fire in your heart? So you can't keep it in. It's like that old Cat Stevens song, a baloney song, but he just but can't keep it in, I gotta let it out. If you love God's word, it's gotta it's gotta be that way. No matter what the world says, no matter what the world does, we can't keep it in, we gotta let it out. Um, we gotta proclaim God's truth. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, Jesus said his words would never pass away. How would his words never pass away? He used the prophets to write the Old Testament. He was going to use his apostles and their colleagues to write the New Testament. So Jesus said his words would, not pass, would never pass away, and the Holy Spirit would guide the apostles into the truth. Look at Matthew 28. 
Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. And there's a lot of, there's even, there's even pastors who've been trained by professors who act like the word of God wasn't originally written down. The gospel was written much later and everything was passed down through oral tradition and all. Okay, it's pretty obvious. I'm not God. You're not God. But I'm not God. But if I was and I became a man and I opened my mouth to teach, you better believe me somebody's taking notes. Okay? At least twice in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew refers to the apostles as scribes. Scribes are scribes because they scribble, not because they memorize. Okay? The, the apostles took notes. Jesus was already having the apostles take notes of his preaching. He said his words would never pass away. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. In fact, we'll take it from verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. You realize it's not our goal to lead people to Christ? That's not our ultimate goal? If you lead somebody to Christ, that's, that's the beginning of our job. We're supposed to also disciple them to Christian maturity. So this idea, I'm going to lead people to Christ and then just leave them on their own, that'd be like saying, well, that guy's a good father because he made 10 babies and never took care of any of them. No, we got to do more than make spiritual babes in Christ. We've got to help people in spiritual maturity. That's why God instituted the church. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So Jesus was telling the apostles, you are going to be my authoritative witnesses to take the gospel message throughout the world. Look at the important stuff that Jesus talked about the night he was betrayed, John chapter 14. You get a chance, read John 14, 15, and 16. Jesus talks so much about the Trinity throughout these passages, but this was the night he was betrayed. This is important information he's got to pass on to his disciples. What if you were a leader of people and you knew that you were going to you were going to be arrested and die the next day, what would you tell your your leading followers? Well, Jesus talks some, some real important stuff here and uh, in John 14:26 says, "But the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name." There's three persons there by the way. The helper of the Holy Spirit, it's one person mentioned, whom the Father, second person mentioned, will send in my name, third person mentioned. Jesus is speaking. But the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So the apostles got some help there. Okay? God was going to bring to their remembrance everything uh, that Jesus uh, taught them. So they're his authoritative witnesses, and he's equipping them supernaturally uh, to proclaim his truth. John 15, 26 and 27. 
But when the helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I shall send to you from the Father, again, all three persons of the Trinity mentioned, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness. Why? Because you have been with me from the beginning. What does that mean, they've been with him? They're going to be his authoritative witnesses because they've been with them from the beginning. Well, you look at Acts 1, when they had to select, when the apostles had to select um, an apostle, a new, make a guy a new apostle to replace uh, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, they said it's got to be someone who's been with us from the beginning, from John's baptism, and he's got to also be a witness of Jesus' resurrection. Okay? And so Jesus was saying, look, you've been with me from the beginning of my public ministry. You hung out with me for three and a half years. I taught you day and night, and I've equipped you to be my authoritative uh, witnesses, okay? And so you will bear witness of me uh, because the spirit of the truth is going to come, and uh, he will testify of me. Look at... uh, John 16 and verse 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, this is why the Feast of Pentecost was so important, to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Um, However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. He's going to guide the apostles into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. So he's going to give them some information about the end times as well. Okay? And um, as we see that, not just in the book of Revelation, but Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. And, and in Second Peter, we see we get information about the end times. And, um, and so the, uh, he'll tell you things to come but he'll guide you into all the truth. This is that guiding the apostles into all the truth. This is new covenant stuff. We got the old covenant in writing. Jesus says that's without error. Now Jesus is saying heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He's promising the New Testament, and he's saying the Holy Spirit's going to guide my followers, the apostles and their colleagues under their authority is going to guide them into all the truth. So they're going to record my new covenant, the New Testament, without error. I'm glad God tells us that. Because Lord knows, man, Peter was like the spokesman of the apostles and the leader of the apostles. And that dude would fall on his face time and time again. So I'm glad that when it came time to write in scriptures, the Holy Spirit guided him into all the truth. Because Peter is just like us. We're not going to get there on our own. Okay? And that's what the 66 books of the Bible are. Old and New Testament. It's not man's own interpretation. Remember Peter says that? It's not man's own interpretation of reality. But the Holy Spirit, men were moved by the Holy Spirit to record his word without error. The Holy Spirit guided them uh, into uh, all the truth. And then Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8, G- 
Jesus says, but you shall receive power. He's about to ascend to heaven. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That was the Feast of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We're, we're Jesus' witnesses. We witness to Jesus. We proclaim Jesus to others. But we're not the authoritative witnesses, okay? I've written several books, okay? Nowhere does God's word says that uh, Phil Fernandez's writings are going to be without error. But these were the authoritative witnesses of God. And if the authoritative witnesses of God were writing New Testament scripture, then God guided, the Holy Spirit guided the early church to recognize which of those writings belong in the New Testament that we have today. God's, God's not just in charge of revealing his truth to the biblical writers. He's also in charge of inspiring the writings, guiding them to record his word without error. And he's also involved, the Holy Spirit is also involved in the early church recognizing which books belong in the Bible. So the logical argument for inerrancy, the Bible is God's word. And since God cannot lie, he is truth. Therefore, God's word is totally true, totally without error. And so I want to spend just a few minutes now talking about evidence that the Bible is God's word. We saw that the Bible teaches that it's God's word without error. We saw that Jesus taught the Old Testament it's God's word without error, and he promised us the New Testament without error. What kind of evidence? And by the way, we're just going to rush through these, so this is something you're going to have some homework on. You're going to have to look much closer into these um, when you get a chance. Uh, evidence the Bible is God's word. Evidence number one, God's stamp of approval. When God's doing a new thing, he lets you know he's doing a new thing. Okay? So when God starts writing the Old Testament through Moses, he gives you hints that Moses is God's spokesman. You got the ten plagues. Okay? You got the parting of the Red Sea. You got water from the rock. You got manna from heaven. You got quail from heaven. I mean, there's an awful lot of hints that Moses is God's guy, God's spokesman, okay? Now, just in case that those hints don't get through to you, you can join with the sons of Korah, rebel against Moses, and then the earth swallows you up, okay? Moses is God's guy. So when God started writing the Old Testament, okay, he let everybody know by signs and wonders, okay? And then from then on, it's who is the, who has the prophetic voice. From Moses, it goes on to Joshua. Eventually, um, the baton gets passed to, to Samuel, the prophet, and then down through the, the Jewish prophets and all. And then, um, and then you get the gap, the 40-year gap between the Old and New Testament. Well, Again, signs and wonders, the life of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, and the apostles. Again, a bombardment of signs and wonders. God saying, hey, I want to get your attention here. The deaf hear. The blind see. 
the lame walk, the dead are raised. I'm trying to catch your attention. You know, it's like what C.S. Lewis said, his Christ figure was the lion Aslan. He said, Aslan is on the move. With the signs and wonders of the apostles, the people of God were realizing God's on the move again. He's going back to writing. And so God's stamp of approval, the signs and wonders. Number two, uh, the Bible is self-authenticating. John 7, verse 17, Jesus said, If anyone's w wills to do his will, if anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, what Jesus is teaching, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. That's interesting. Jesus is saying, look, if you desire to do God's will, you desire to please the true God, you'll recognize my words, Jesus' words, whether they're from God or not. And so there's something about the Bible, when we read the Bible deep down inside, it's its own evidence that it's God's word. We pick up the Bible, even with difficult passages that we can't figure out, we realize, wow, this is God speaking to me. This is the word of God. Okay? Now let me say this. You're going to need the other evidences as well for your unsaved friends because the Mormons and the Muslims say the same thing about their writings. The Mormons will give you a free book of Mormon and just pray about it and as you read it, if you feel a burning in your bosom, then that's God letting you know it's the word of God. So just you got to just be careful on this because although the more you study the Bible, the more you realize it's God's word, if you're open to truth from God and you desire to do his will, uh, Satan counterfeits that. The counterfeits are never as good as the real thing, but they're out there, okay? So number one, God puts a stamp of approval with miracles, signs, and wonders. Number two, the Bible is self-authenticating. Number three, evidence that the Bible is God's word to fulfill prophecies. You have hundreds of prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. Also, hundreds of prophecies about empires, world empires, countries, cities, events. Okay? In my book, No Other Gods, I, I discuss some of the uh, fulfilled prophecies, not just about Jesus, but about cities like Tyre and how it would be destroyed and, and, um, and, and empires. Uh, Daniel predicts the, even the future coming of the... Uh, Greek Empire and then the Roman Empire after it and what it would be like. And the, uh, the uh, uh, Messiah being executed before 70 AD, the many fulfilled prophecies. We don't even give Jesus credit. Jesus said the kingdom of God, he came to earth to bring the kingdom of God, and he said it would start out small like a mustard seed and then grow to be the biggest plant in the garden. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a little bit of leaven, that which causes the dough to rise. Little, put a little bit of leaven, and it leavens the whole loaf. Okay? Um, he's saying the kingdom of God, my following started real small, just with 12, 12 followers. Okay? One of them was a traitor. And it's going to grow and fill the entire earth. And that's exactly what happened. But we see prophecy after prophecy 
in the scriptures fulfilled. The only prophecies in the scriptures that have yet to be fulfilled are the ones that haven't happened yet. And uh, you better roll up your sleeves and get ready for those. So fulfilled prophecies proving that it is God's word. Even in the book of Isaiah, Yahweh, the God of Israel, taunts the false gods and tells them to predict the future. Um, uh, evidence number four that the Bible is God's word is supernatural wisdom. The Bible teaches that the earth is a sphere suspended on nothing. The Bible teaches the first and second laws of thermodynamics, which weren't established until the mid-1800s, that there's no new energy being created or destroyed. No energy is being created or destroyed. It's the same amount of energy. That's the first law, energy conservation. But it changes forms. When it changes forms, it becomes less and less usable. So usable energy is winding down, energy deterioration. It took us until 18, 1850s to figure that out. And God's word said that from the beginning. God created the universe in six days and has been resting ever since. Um, even when Jesus said, you know, God rested from his creation work after six days of creating. And uh, yet Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away. Heaven and earth are winding down. Energy deterioration. The Bible rejects spontaneous generation that life could evolve from non-living material without intelligent intervention. Um, uh, all the founders of modern science were Bible-believing Christians. That's not a coincidence. They understood that a rational God created us in his image, so we're rational, and created the universe in a way that makes sense, so through reason, we could find out about the universe in which we live. And then you know, people, atheists throw the problem of evil at us. Look, if atheism is true, there is no such thing as evil. Okay? Evil has to be a perversion of that which is good, so evil is actually evidence that the good must exist. It's actually evidence for God. Okay? Um, Evil cannot exist without good. Now, can good exist without evil? Yes. At one time, only, only the all-good God existed, and then he created a perfect creation before the fall of, of Lucifer and before the fall of humans. And so good could exist without evil, but evil can't exist without good. So atheists say, oh, here's something you never heard of, the problem of evil and human suffering. Dude, we know about evil and human suffering. That's why we visit the hospitals or at least we did before COVID. And, um, uh, and then the, the solution to the problem of evil. How do you solve the problem of evil? If God exists, how is he going to solve the problem of evil? That's why he wrote us 66 books, to explain how he's going to solve the problem that developed in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. Um, you step outside the Bible, death wins. You reject what the Bible teaches, and Jesus' bodily resurrection and salvation through Jesus, in the end, evil wins. Evidence number five, the Bible's positive impact on mankind. We abolished slavery. It was Christians who led the abolition of slavery. Don't listen to this world. Um, they're lying to you. They're rewriting history. We promoted women's rights. The women's rights movement was founded by Bible-believing Christians. Now, it's been hijacked by Wiccans, you know, modern-day witches and lesbians and communists and socialists. Uh, but the women's rights movement was, was, uh, began uh, by Bible-believing Christians. We built the hospitals and the orphanages. Uh, the freedom we enjoy today, which we're running out of, by the way, 
and the technology and now this is the Bible's positive impact on mankind. Okay? Go to any country that hasn't been impacted by uh, the Judeo-Christian scriptures, the Bible, and I'll show you a country where slavery is still the name of the game and women have no rights. Um, evidence number six that the Bible is God's word. Uh, the, the Bible is the number one bestseller of all time. Uh, worldwide cir circulation, uh, more Bibles printed than any other book, yet there's more copies of the Bible burned than any other book. So you, you would expect if God's going to write a collection of writings that's going to be his book, his holy book for mankind, the 66 books of the Bible, you would expect Satan to hate it more than any other writings and try to destroy more of them than any other copies, and that's true of the Bible. But if it's God's word, you mess with God, God wins. And so even with all the, the millions of Bibles that have been burned, there's billions of Bibles in print. I can't even count how many languages. There are hundreds of languages that the only books that are in written are biblical books because Christian missionaries invented a written language for the spoken language of the tribal peoples and then translated books of the Bible for them. You know, look into New Tribes Mission on that. So the Bible is the number one bestseller of all time. You'd expect that. People might say, well, no, I, I, you know, what about Mein Kampf by Hitler? Eh, it didn't sell anywhere near as much as the Bible. Sorry, Adolf, you lose. You try to compete with God, you lose. And then, and then evidence number seven, the supernatural unity of the, of the Bible. Dozens of different authors writing over a period of about 2,000 years, yet you have common themes that run throughout. Okay? Um, I mean, you got, you got Adam and Eve naked and not ashamed. Then they sin in the garden. Then they're ashamed. Okay? And it produces thorns. And you have death and this... The, 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 the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then God the Son becomes a man. He gets nailed to a tree, naked, nailed to a tree, and he rises from the dead and conquers death in a garden tomb. He had a crown of thorns on his head. You can find themes like that. Just follow the image of God throughout the 66 books of the Bible. We were created in God's image, then we've marred that image and fell into sin. Then Jesus comes to earth and is God incarnate. He is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1 tells us that. But then we're, God has predetermined to complete the work that he starts in all believers so that we'll be fully conformed to God's image. And it, 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 it's, it's like, it seems like you know, there's so much unity in the scriptures. It's like, wow, it's like there's one author behind it all. Yeah. I mean, it's dual authorship. He used the personality and the vocabulary of human authors, but God is the, uh, the common author uh, who has his word proclaimed throughout the 66 books of the Bible. And then finally, evidence number eight, evidence that the Bible is God's word. Jesus, who is God the Son, taught that the Bible is God's inerrant word. That's what we talked about today. He said the Old Testament is God's word without error, and then he promised the New Covenant, the New Testament, okay? Now, Jesus claimed to be God. 
you know, we make this mistake all the time. We, we think Jesus is not special because we put him in the category with all the other founders of the great world religions, like Abraham, Moses, uh, Gandhi types, Confucius, um, Muhammad. And Jesus doesn't stick out that much. We've got to understand, those guys never claim to uniquely be God. So if you put Jesus in the category with all the other guys who uniquely claim to be God, they all prove themselves to be insane, crazy people. Jesus is the only man who claimed to be God and lived a life so consistent with it that, that honest people will have to admit if God became a man, he'd be just like Jesus. And, uh, but Jesus, who is God the Son, taught the Bible as God's word. He proved, he didn't just claim he's God the Son, he proved it through his miracles, his bodily resurrection from the dead, his sinless life, and the hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that he fulfilled. Okay? So Jesus proved he is God and uh, claimed to be God, proved he is God. And what does God tell us? God tells us the Bible, Old and New Testament, is his word. So God's stamp of approval through miracles, the Bible is self-authenticating, the fulfilled prophecies of the Bible, the Bible's supernatural wisdom, its positive impact on mankind. It's the number one bestseller of all time. It's supernatural unity. And then finally, Jesus, who is God the Son, taught the Bible is God's inerrant word. Jesus' resurrection proves his teachings are true. Therefore, the Bible is God's word, totally without error. We should test all things with God's word. And so we'll close with Isaiah 40, verse 8. Isaiah 40, verse 8. It's one of my favorite verses. I have it displayed in my, my class at, uh, at school, my classroom at school. God's word says the grass withers. By the way, passage before that tells us the people are as grass. I'm, in a, I'm 62 now. I'm in the process of uh, withering. I've been doing a lot, a lot of withering lately, and uh, this uh, last year has been a year of wither. I'm gonna, if I write an autobiography, I think I'm going to call it the deterioration of an athlete, uh, the Phil Fernandez story. Um, my show was hurting so hard last week I couldn't even bench a blank bar. Felt like crying. It was like bone against bone. Why? Because the people are as grass, and the grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. People in positions of power are going to come at you, people. They're going to come at you, brothers and sisters. If you think what you've seen in the last few years is crazy, you wait to see what's coming down. The government's going to come, come down on you. It's going to come down on you hard. Some of us are going to be tempted to lose hope, but don't lose hope. You know why? Because the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We serve a risen king who died for us and who's going to come back for us and make things right. And so we stand on his word 
Let God be true. And every man, I don't care if your name is Bill Gates or Joe Biden. I do not care. You contradict the word of God. You compete with Jesus and his word. You lose. Let God be true. And every man a liar. Let's close with a word of prayer.